Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, fellow cardio nerds. My name is Sukrat Narula, and I'm a PhD student at McMaster University doing work in cardiovascular disease epidemiology with Guillaume Paré and Salim Youssef. I'm also a medical student at Mount Sinai in New York. My current research focus is in both clinical epidemiology and various applications of molecular epidemiology, including the evaluation and characterization of circulating proteins. I hope to one day become a cardiologist, and my goals are to work clinically in the critical care unit. I hope that one day my work and research can reach a synergy with what I see on a day-to-day basis clinically. Thanks for joining the Cardio Nerds on their maiden voyage on this fast-paced cardiobstetrics cruise. We've already had several phenomenal stops on this journey to improving maternal cardiovascular health, including normal pregnancy physiology, pregnancy and heart failure, pregnancy and coronary disease, pregnancy and arrhythmia, and pregnancy in pulmonary hypertension. Now, as we dock, get ready for our next port of call, a very important discussion about pregnancy and aortopathies with the expert in the field and rising star, Dr. Nupur Narula. We will dissect the approach to preconception counseling, risk assessment, and surveillance for a variety of aortopathies, as well as approach to stable and acute aortic syndrome during and following pregnancy. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. There's no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Stay tuned for a special message about cardioobstetrics and women heart. Personally, I do have an important disclosure. Dr. Nupur Narula is my older sister. She's a WIC. Yep, she's a woman in cardiology, but she's also a woman in charge. Not only has she been a role model for me in my career, I don't think I've actually met anyone that spends more time and knows more about their patients than her. But she's also an amazing mother to my nephew, who also happens to be my favorite member of Generation Alpha. The fact that she's able to take care of her patients so effectively and manage to be a bona fide expert in aortopathies and vascular disease more generally, all while having so much on her plate is pretty remarkable. I think you'll find this episode informative and that while you'll be impressed by her depth of knowledge, it will only give you a taste of how impressive she really is. With that being said, I'm still our parents' favorite. Anyway, let's learn about aortopathy in pregnancy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm Sonia Shah, one of the thick co-chairs for the Cardio Nerds Cardioobstetric Series. Today, we'll be discussing a really important topic when considering cardiovascular complications in pregnant patients, aortopathies. We are thrilled to introduce Dr. Anam Minhas, our fellow lead for today's episode. Anam is a fourth-year cardiology fellow and next year's chief fellow at Johns Hopkins University interested in cardiobstetrics. In fact, she has designed and is the inaugural cardiobstetrics fellow at Hopkins. Welcome, Anam. Thanks, Sonia. It's very exciting to be here today with you guys. Anam, I'm so excited to meet you. Like I said, I've heard so much about you from Dan and all of my other friends at Hopkins. And it's just so impressive what you've been able to do by creating your own custom-made homegrown cardio OB fellowship. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what that year looks like for you? Yeah, so it has been a tremendously exciting year. A lot of my year is spent in clinic. So we have a combined clinic with our maternal fetal medicine team where we see high-risk cardiology patients about once a month. 50% of them have congenital heart disease. 50% of them have other forms of cardiovascular disease. I also see consults from the OB service, any cardiology consults that come in throughout the year. And then I have my own personal women's health clinic. 
I think the most exciting part actually are the complex patients that we have multidisciplinary conversations on with cardiac surgery, cardiac anesthesia, OB anesthesia. Often these patients end up going to the operating room for delivery to the cardiac ORs, and I'm usually present for the delivery, which is a very exciting part, especially as a cardiology fellow. It's been a lovely year. That is awesome, Anam. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. We also have the absolute pleasure of introducing Dr. Nupur Narula. Dr. Narula earned her medical degree from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and graduated with distinction in research. She then went to the esteemed Mayo Clinic for internal medicine residency, followed by a vascular medicine fellowship at Mount Sinai Hospital and cardiology fellowship at New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medical College. She has pursued basic and clinical research training in cardiovascular genetics and is currently completing her master's in clinical epidemiology. Dr. Narula is also a superstar researcher and has received grant funding for her research during her fellowship by the Michael Woke Heart Foundation and is currently a Fund for the Future Grant Kellen Scholar at Weill Cornell Medicine. She is studying aerotopathies such as Marfan syndrome with special emphasis on pregnancy and dissection risk. Dr. Narula, we are just thrilled to have you join us today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Dr. Narula, before we dive in, would you mind telling us how you got interested in cardioobstetrics? Yeah, absolutely. So I became very interested in genetic aortopathies through extensive clinical research with my mentor while I was a medical student. Now, when seeing individuals with heritable diseases, the disease impact extends beyond the individual, and very frequently you end up caring for whole families. Specifically, as it relates to genetic aortopathies, the manifestation of aortic disease can be in young individuals. When I began my fellowship, I immediately started working with two of my mentors, Dr. Roman and Dr. Devereaux, evaluating the role of pregnancy-related aortic complications in Marfan syndrome. And there, my interest in cardioobstetrics has grown both from a clinical and research perspective. Yeah, that's incredible, Dr. Nurula. Thanks for sharing that. So guys, I've got a little riddle to get us started. What did the aorta say to the superior vena cava? I aorta tell you that you're vain. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. So let's dive into the root of today's discussion on aortas and pregnancy. Anna, we can't wait to hear your case. All right, let's go. Dr. Narula, we'd love your perspective on a patient of mine, Miss Flex is a 26-year-old woman who is 6 feet 1 inch, weighs 160 pounds, and was recently diagnosed with Marfan syndrome. She has no known cardiac problems, but her uncle died suddenly after complaining of chest pain. No autopsy was performed. She is interested in getting pregnant and wants to know whether she can safely have a baby. What would you advise, Ms. Flex? So this is a really integral question. It's also a very loaded question and one that we should dissect pretty well. So we know that this is a young woman with Marfan syndrome and a family history of what could be aortic dissection or acute coronary syndrome or even pulmonary embolism. Furthermore, we don't yet have aortic dimensions for this patient. So if we take a step back and look at the 2010 revised Ghent nosology for the diagnosis of Marfan syndrome, the patient would have met diagnostic criteria in one of two ways. And this would depend on whether she's considered to have a positive family history. So if she's considered to have a positive family history as it relates to her uncle, then she was either diagnosed with ectopia lentis, aortic root dilatation, which would have been indexed, or was noted to have an elevated systemic score of greater than or equal to seven. 
Now, if we're ultimately uncertain about her family history, then in the majority of situations to meet criteria, she would have to have aortic root dilatation, in addition to either ectopia lentis, a systemic score greater than or equal to 7, or a mutation in the fibrillin 1G. Now, because we have not been given further data regarding her uncle, I'm going to make the assumption that she has an uncertain family history, and therefore that she likely has some degree of aortic root dilatation. Now, the data and literature are currently markedly limited in terms of comprehensive presentation of women with Marfan syndrome that have undergone systematic peripartum follow-up with serial imaging. And as a result, we have publication bias with overrepresentation of the pregnancy-associated vascular complications in these women. Now, in our series presented at the 2018 AHA Scientific Sessions, the majority of women with Marfan syndrome who underwent sanctioned pregnancy with prepartum risk counseling and close clinical and imaging follow-up, they maintain stability of aortic dimensions over time. It appears that pregnancy-associated type A dissection, including in our series, most commonly occurs in women that are unaware of their diagnosis. Type B dissection, however, in these women remains an unpredictable complication. Now, in one of the largest series of Marfan women, namely the Gentac registry, there was an eight-fold increase in aortic complications in women with Marfan syndrome in the immediate pregnancy versus non-pregnancy period. And as a result, for our patient here, we would need to know more of her personal history, her cardiovascular history, especially aortic dimensions, and her family history. And then we would review the known literature and data with her. We should also be able to provide information to our patients regarding the potential role of IVF and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Genetic testing could help to confirm the diagnosis and allow for PGD, assuming a pathogenic variant is identified. And the last aspect, of course, to discuss is the benefit for such patients to be followed in specialized centers in which there's a delivery plan, multidisciplinary involvement, and ready collaboration with our skilled cardiothoracic surgeons. Thank you for that. That was super comprehensive and really helpful. Taking a step back, though, what is it about Marfan's that makes these patients so high risk? Like, what's the pathophysiology here? Sure. You know, it sounds frightening, but we're soon going to be submitting our series for publication. It's going to constitute the most comprehensively presented data thus far internationally, in which we demonstrate the safety of pregnancy in Marfan syndrome women who undergo sanctioned pregnancies at specialized aortic centers with prepartum risk counseling and close clinical and imaging follow-up. However, in situations where complications do occur, it can be frightening. Now, in terms of the pathophysiology, there are certain proposed causes of increased dissection risk. As we know, there are several hemodynamic changes in pregnancy, predominantly augmented in the second and third trimesters, and then in the very immediate postpartum period. This includes an increase in the stroke volume and heart rate, and as a result, in an increase in the cardiac output, as well as a concomitant decrease in peripheral resistance. Next, there are well-documented pregnancy-associated morphologic and histochemical changes of the aortic wall. Now, in women with Marfan syndrome, at baseline, the aortic tissue tends to be weaker or prone to dilatation and dissection. And in addition, in an experimental mouse model of Marfan syndrome, dissection risk was alleviated by withholding lactation or via administration of an oxytocin receptor antagonist, highlighting the possible role of oxytocin in dissection risk. It's important to know, however, with the latter point, that we do not currently have data that supports translation of these findings in Marfan syndrome patients. 
Thanks, Dr. Nurula. It really helps to understand how pregnancy is superimposed on the already tissue weakness, the cystic medial degeneration already have in Marfan's. And congratulations for your series. It sounds like it's going to be really helpful in helping us better understand like clinically how that bears to be. And I heard you say that these women all get preconception counseling as part of their involvement in the series. But you know, to provide this counseling, we have to first understand their individual risk. So what can we do to assess our patient's risk of pregnancy complications in this preconception phase? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. The major benefit in this case is the ability to collect data and provide pre-pregnancy risk counseling. So in the preconception phase to assess risk, we would perform a detailed clinical history, assessment of cardiovascular history, pharmacologic therapy, and family history. And it would be really important during these initial appointments as well to emphasize the importance of screening first-degree relatives. We would perform a physical examination, which would include a comprehensive anthropometric evaluation. And most importantly, we would pursue an echocardiogram to obtain aortic dimensions so that we may assess the safety of pregnancy. We would discuss the role of medical therapy with continuation of beta blockers if the patients were already on this. We also tend to avoid aldosterone receptor antagonists in women planning pregnancy and in the intrapartum period. We would ensure that our patient further has an appointment with our high-risk maternal fetal medicine colleague so that a collaborative follow-up strategy can be established. Speaking of echocardiogram, we actually just got our patient's prior echo results from her home clinic, and this showed an aortic size of 3.8 centimeters. Dr. Narula, can you please speak on what this might mean? Yeah, absolutely. So this is an important concept because aortic root diameter should be indexed to age, height, weight, and sex, and a Z-score should be calculated. Now, a Z-score of greater than 2 is consistent with aortic root dilatation. Now, in our patient, if we actually take her aortic root size and the other information you gave with respect to her height and her weight, her Z-score calculates to be 2.96. And therefore, her aortic root would be considered mildly dilated for age and body size in a woman. Now, with that said, major society guidelines use absolute cutoffs for their recommendations surrounding the management of pregnancy and Marfan syndrome. But I'm sure you're going to ask me about that later on. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so it seems that pregnancy is a particularly high risk time for patients with existing aortic aneurysms. I imagine that aneurysms associated with different conditions may have varying risk. So Dr. Narula, could you review some of the specific syndromes related to aortic pathology and maybe the risk associated with each of these conditions? Yes, absolutely. So let's start with Marfan syndrome. Currently, we have absence of systematic data by which a strong evidence-based threshold for dissection risk can be delineated. And as a result, even guideline-based recommendations vary. Now, the most recent AHA-ACC guidelines for the diagnosis and management of patients with thoracic aortic disease recommend considering elective aortic surgery in women with Marfan syndrome contemplating pregnancy if the aortic root measures greater than or equal to 4 centimeters. Conversely, the most recent European guidelines discourage pregnancy if the aortic root measures greater than 4.5 centimeters and consideration of individual risk factors for dissection if the prepartum aortic root is between 4 and 4.5 centimeters. Now, in one of the largest series of Marfan syndrome women, namely the Gentac registry, the risk of dissection was actually higher in the immediate pregnancy period versus the non-pregnancy period. In our series presented at the AHA Scientific Sessions in 2018, Pregnancy-associated type A dissection occurred in the third trimester in women that were unaware of their diagnosis of Marfan syndrome. 
However, type B dissection remains an unpredictable complication and requires further study. In our series overall, there was no significant differences in aortic dissection between Paris and Nulliparis women. Now, the next syndrome I'd like to talk about is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is an inherited connective tissue disorder that's caused by defects in the fibrillar collagen genes or genes that encode collagen modifiers. In terms of vascular EDS, two of the major criteria include arterial rupture at a young age and uterine rupture during the third trimester in the absence of prior C-section and or severe peripartum perineum tears. However, overall, there's very limited data on vascular type EDS in pregnancy. One reason for this is syndrome rarity. But as a result, clinical practice is driven by data from case reports, small case series, or series with considerable limitations. The best data that we have comes from Dr. Byers' group in Seattle. Now, in their retrospective pedigree analysis of 527 women, there were 283 ever-pregnant women with 616 delivered pregnancies and 30 pregnancy-related deaths. This translates to a pregnancy-related death rate of 4.9% per delivery. Very interestingly, there were no pregnancy-related deaths for 27 women with 51 pregnancies who had heterozygous null mutations in the COL3A1 gene. There was no significant difference in Kaplan-Meier survival curves between nulliparis and Paris women. Now, they conducted a specific interview study of 38 women with 113 pregnancies, and they found that the diagnosis of vascular EDS was actually established after completion of the majority of pregnancies, which is a major problem since this risk counseling is not provided in these situations. Now, of the 35 women that had protein-altering mutations who had 76 deliveries, there was arterial dissection or rupture in seven. There were also four pregnancy-related maternal deaths in women with arterial events. Let's talk about Loess-Dietz syndrome next. So Loess-Dietz syndrome is another connective tissue disorder, which was first described in 2005 as a separate entity from Marfan syndrome. And it differs by Marfan syndrome by the absence of ectopia lentis and the additional presence in some of hypertelorism, cleft palate, and club foot. Now, depending on the underlying pathogenic variant, dissection risk can be increased at an overall smaller diameter as compared to individuals with Marfan syndrome. Increased vertebral artery tortuosity indices have also been associated with an earlier age of dissection in these patients. Now, with respect to pregnancy, there is very limited data available. In a recent series of 13 women with Loess-Dietz syndrome with 20 pregnancies in eight centers in the UK, there were no pregnancy-associated vascular dissections. Although, in the assessment of intrapartum measurements, the aortic root increased from 38 to 47 millimeters in one patient, for which she underwent C-section and elective aortic root replacement, from 36 to 42 millimeters in another patient, by 1 millimeter in two patients, by 2 millimeters in three patients, and by 4 millimeters in two patients. And therefore, we need more robust data in this patient population to make evidence-based recommendations. Although these data suggest the potential need for more frequent intrapartum echocardiographic monitoring in LDS patients. Now, with that said, one size doesn't fit all. And as I mentioned, risk may be further dependent on the underlying pathogenic variant. So in Dr. Ruth Hesselink's retrospective data of 17 women with SMAD3 mutations who had 34 pregnancies with a total of 28 live births, there was no clear increased risk of aortic dissection, therefore highlighting again the need for larger systematic studies in this patient population. Let's now talk about Turner syndrome. 
So Turner syndrome is the most common chromosomal abnormality affecting females. One of the main clinical features is premature ovarian failure. Now, from a cardiovascular perspective, Turner syndrome is associated with both congenital and acquired heart disease. Approximately 15 to 30% of patients will have bicuspid aortic valve. Aortic dilatation is also seen in Turner syndrome, and a measurement known as the aortic size index, or ASI, in which the ascending aorta dimension is indexed to the body surface area, is often calculated in patients greater than 15 years of age. An ASI of greater than 2 is considered aortic dilatation. Although there are no robust prospective studies of aortic dissection related to ASI in patients with Turner syndrome. With that said, a larger ASI, especially greater than or equal to 2.5, prompts discussion of need for elective aortic surgery. Now, pregnancy-associated recommendations are best summarized in the most recent 2018 statement on Turner syndrome. The main takeaways are that assisted reproductive therapy may increase risk of cardiovascular complications, although an increased age at conception or a higher likelihood of multiple pregnancies may further result in this increased risk. In addition, risk counseling is recommended, as is imaging of the thoracic aorta and heart within two years prior to pregnancy or assisted reproductive therapy. Monitoring in these individuals should be at least once at approximately 20 weeks in women without an increased ASI or other cardiovascular risk factors. However, recommendations further include echocardiographic monitoring every four to eight weeks intrapartum in those with an ASI of greater than or equal to two centimeters per meter square, or an additional cardiovascular risk factor, such as coarctation, which is seen in up to 18% of individuals with Turner syndrome, and subsequently within the first month post-delivery. Let's move on to bicuspid aortic valve. While this is more common than Marfan syndrome, affects 1-2% to of the population, and up to 50% of patients with bicuspid aortic valve also have ascending aorta dilatation, the risk of aortic dissection has been noted to be low in this patient group. With that said, we again have lack of prospective studies with systematic and serial imaging follow-up of these patients in the intrapartum period. Now, the most recent ESC guidelines recommend elective aortic surgery if the ascending aorta is 5 centimeters prior to proceeding to pregnancy. Lastly, let's talk about thoracic aortic aneurysms and or dissections. Now, up to 20% of individuals with thoracic aortic aneurysm and or dissections without a known syndrome will have a family history, and the most commonly implicated gene in these patients is ACTA2. Now, interestingly, patients with ACTA2 mutations have been noted to dissect at smaller dimensions as compared to patients with Marfan syndrome overall. Dr. Milowitz's group in Houston published a series of 53 women with ACTA mutations who had a total of 137 pregnancies. Now, of these, eight women had pregnancy-associated dissections, including six type A dissections. Interestingly, none of the women had been diagnosed with the mutation prior to the aortic event. While this highlights the importance of knowledge of patient diagnosis for appropriate risk counseling and multidisciplinary management, we unfortunately do not have robust data to make comprehensive recommendations for pregnancy in this patient population. Wow, Dr. Nerula, that was such a whirlwind tour of these genetic erythropathies and hearing you, you know, teach us about these genetic syndromes, especially within the context of pregnancy, really hits home for us. Cardinerds might remember our Cleveland Clinic CNCR case from earlier this last year was about a young woman who essentially had an urgent delivery because of HELP syndrome complicated by spontaneous liver laceration, was then transferred to the Cleveland Clinic. CICU with 
cardiogenic shock and pulmonary edema found to have a spontaneous papillary muscle rupture. And despite a valiant effort by my colleagues, including Erica Hutt and so many others, doing everything they could to save her life, she unfortunately, we couldn't save her. And she was found to have a spontaneous transverse abdominal aortic dissection with hemorrhage. You know, we, we think about her often. It was the first time we really understood the gravity of what we're talking about when we think about the importance of preconception counseling. You know, for her, we didn't know that she, you know, had, and it ended up being vascular elder Donda syndrome. We didn't know prior to her pregnancy that uh, she had this risk factor. But we get the privilege of hosting her husband next week, actually, so that we can remember her, honor her memory, and also learn from him the impact on the family, you know, how they processed it, and especially what it means in terms of genetic counseling for them. You know, thankfully, her beautiful baby daughter survived and is thriving as a toddler right now. And we have the honor of hosting Dr. Hal Dietz to moderate that conversation. And I also want to give a shout out to the Marfan Foundation and the VEDS movement because of how much support they've given to patients and their families like, uh, like ours. Thanks so much for sharing that, Amit. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Nula. So going back to our patient, what would you recommend for follow-up imaging for her, you know, both prior to conception and then also during pregnancy? You know, how often do you image and surveil these patients during pregnancy? Taking care of a pregnant woman, again, especially thinking about our prior patients, does make me a little uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. So we always should have assessment of aortic dimensions prior to pregnancy. Now, the 2018 ESC guidelines indicate that in individuals with aortic pathology overall, echocardiography should be pursued every 12 weeks, approximately, if low risk, and more frequently up to every month if high risk. Now, we recommend echocardiography at least once per trimester in patients such as Ms. Flex, with more frequent monitoring should there be aortic growth. Echocardiograms are pursued rather than CT due to ionizing radiation exposure with the latter. Gadolinium-based contrast as part of MRI is additionally avoided in the context of pregnancy. Dr. Nurula, that seems like a very reasonable approach. It is important for us to remember that gadolinium is not approved for use during pregnancy or breastfeeding. And as much as we love the rapid results of a CT, ionizing radiation exposure should be limited during pregnancy as much as possible. As a follow-up question, if we were to see Ms. Flex later in pregnancy with a more than 0.5 centimeter aortic growth at follow-up, so now it would be 4.3 centimeter aortic root, what would you do then? That's a really good question, Anum. First and foremost, we must verify our dimensions. I'll say that again, we must verify our dimensions because nothing could have greater impact. Now, if these dimensions are indeed verified, this would be concerning. Now that she's late in pregnancy and the fetus is presumably viable, we would need to discuss cesarean delivery and subsequent aortic surgery in Ms. Flex. Thank you so much for reviewing what we would do in the instance that our patient's aortic root were growing. But thankfully for our patient, her aortic root remains stable. I'm glad you reminded us to verify that aortic root dimension. Regardless, though, I imagine this is a scary time for a patient and a challenging conversation to have if her aortic root had been enlarged. What tips or advice do you have to manage these difficult conversations with patients? Absolutely. You know, I think conversations need to start early, early on. They are challenging. You know, our most important role is to provide transparency in pre-pregnancy risk counseling. We have to present the data that are available. We need to present the gaps in literature. 
we need to present the possibility that in the right individual, we can proceed through pregnancy safely with close clinical and imaging monitoring and follow-up in a multidisciplinary construct. However, we also need to discuss the possibility for complications, including aortic growth. We need to discuss that the risk of aortic dissection in the immediate pregnancy versus non-pregnancy period remains heightened. And throughout this entire process, we always have to emphasize that we're going to be present along every step of the way with our patient. That's amazing. You know, knowing and executing the guidelines and data is one thing, but being a steward for your patient and guiding them through shared decision-making is entirely another. So it's helpful to hear your approach to the Dr. Nerola. In prior episodes, we've discussed medications that are safe during pregnancy, but obviously for our pregnant patients with aerotopathies, making sure blood pressure is well-controlled is so important. What is your blood pressure goal for these patients and which antihypertensive agents do you favor during pregnancy? So many of our patients are on beta blocker therapy prior to pregnancy. And in these individuals, we continue this. Now, the overall teaching is that labetalol or metoprolol are preferable, although other beta blockers are generally fine. Calcium antagonists are the next agent of choice, such as nifedipine. Now, management of elevated blood pressures in these patients is a little bit different. And as such, we personally would aim to keep our patients at a goal systolic blood pressure of less than or equal to 120 millimeters mercury and a goal diastolic blood pressure of less than or equal to 80 millimeters per mercury. So it sounds like our goals in general for patients with existing aerotopathies is much lower. So that's helpful to note. And it's always helpful to review these medications, especially since as cardiology fellows, we usually don't need to recall them. So thank you for reviewing that. And Sonia, if you ever forget and need a good reference, I highly recommend the European Society of Cardiology 2018 Pregnancy Guidelines and the 2020 American Heart Association Statement on Management of Cardiovascular Disease in Pregnant Patients. Both of these guidelines provide a great breadth of topics relevant for the cardiovascular care of pregnant women, and they provide a good review of the current existing state of literature on these topics. So Dr. Narula, We've talked about the risk of pregnancy associated with specific syndromes, but when would you advise against pregnancy or recommend an elective aortic repair prior to conception? Sure. So let's talk about Marfan syndrome first. You know, our data presented at the 2018 AHA scientific sessions are more in line with the European guidelines. However, to summarize our recommendations based on pretty extensive literature review and review of our own series, Women with prepartum aortic root dimensions of 4 to 4.5 centimeters underwent sanctioned pregnancies in our patient cohort and demonstrated stability in the peripartum period. We would recommend elective aortic root replacement in Marfan syndrome women contemplating pregnancy who have aortic root dimensions of greater than 4.5 centimeters. So let's talk about low steed syndrome. Now, the 2018 ESC recommendations in terms of management of cardiovascular diseases during pregnancy indicate that pregnancy should be avoided if the aortic dimensions are greater than 4.5 centimeters or avoided if aortic dimensions are greater than 4.0 centimeters in those with additional risk factors, such as family history of dissection or sudden death. Now, given limited data that inform our clinical decision-making in this realm, and the fact that underlying pathogenic variant may need to be considered in lowest deed syndrome patients, multi-institutional series likely need to be formed to define appropriate thresholds for heightened dissection risk in pregnancy. Let's now talk about bicuspid aortic valve. 
As we discussed, recommendations in the absence of robust data to comprehensively evaluate the topic is consideration of elliptic aortic surgery if the ascending aorta is greater than five centimeters. Let's now talk about vascular EDS. The 2018 ESC guidelines note that pregnancy is a very high-risk undertaking and is not advised in patients with vascular EDS. However, as we discussed, the data is markedly limited. It's important to note that there is undoubtedly risk, the knowledge of diagnosis is critical for pre-pregnancy risk counseling, and mutations are not created equal, with an attenuated phenotype seen in those with a null mutation. And as a result, we need more robust data in this patient group. And until then, recommendations require ongoing personalization. Lastly, let's review Turner syndrome. It's recommended, based on guidelines, that women with an aortic size index of greater than 2.5 centimeters per meter square or a history of aortic dissection avoid pregnancy. It's also recommended that those with an aortic size index of 2 to 2.5 centimeters per meter squared and risk factors for aortic dissection, such as bicuspid aortic valve, elongation of the transverse aorta, coarctation of the aorta, and hypertension avoid pregnancy. Awesome. That was a incredible review. So thank you for sharing that. I think the major takeaway I got from that is there are clearly different cutoffs based on the existing syndrome for all of these patients. So we'll be sure to include all of this in our show notes afterwards to reference for anyone who happens to see patients with some of these syndromes. So let's switch gears here and maybe talk a little bit about delivery. So most of us rely on our obstetric friends to plan for delivery, but What should we know in general about delivery planning in women with aerotopathies? Thanks, Sonia. You know, undoubtedly, there are different recommendations for different syndromes. However, the more I read, the more questions there are that really arise. And what we can truly see is that despite certain cutoffs, we really need more robust systematic studies to ascertain thresholds for heightened dissection risks in these patients, especially as it pertains to pregnancy. So when we talk about delivery, the goal really is to decrease cardiovascular stress of the delivery process. So timing is a bit of a hot topic because you have to consider the risk for the mother and the baby with the obstetric risks in consideration. And therefore, the decision really should be made jointly with the high-risk cardio B team. Now, in ESC guidelines, recommendations are at least for induction of labor at 40 weeks in, quote, all women with cardiac disease. Now, in the ACOG literature, they similarly recommend schedule induction of labor at 39 to 40 weeks in women with cardiac disease. However, this is really a question that needs to be reviewed on an individual basis, depending on the underlying condition in a multidisciplinary construct. But if we look at certain examples, such as in patients with Marfan syndrome, we proceed with normal spontaneous vaginal delivery unless there is an obstetric indication for cesarean sections. Now, guideline recommendations in Marfan syndrome women with aortic dimensions of 4 to 4.5 centimeters are to proceed with vaginal delivery with an expedited second stage and regional anesthesia to avoid spikes in blood pressures. Although, again, plans should be meticulously discussed with the cardio-OB team. In patients with vascular EDS, VASCERN, the European Reference Network on Rare Multisystemic Vascular Disease, actually recommends cesarean section at 35 to 37 weeks. Thanks for summarizing that, Dr. Nerula. You hope everything goes to plan, but sometimes that doesn't always happen. Of course, we want to prevent anything bad from happening to our patients. But what is the approach if a patient unexpectedly does have a dissection during pregnancy? And how would you approach that? Yeah. So, you know, the management is similar to non-pregnant patients with the caveat that the gestational age is integral in determining fetus viability. 
So in type A dissections, which constitute surgical emergencies, you deliver the baby via cesarean section and perform surgery. Now, if the fetus is not viable, we would proceed to surgery with very close monitoring of both the mother and the baby, and we would subsequently make a decision with respect to continuing or terminating the pregnancy. In type B dissection, you encounter a similar algorithmic approach with respect to intervention if the patient is unstable. However, if the patient is stable, medical therapy is pursued. So let's say that our patient has a successful delivery and is doing fine immediately postpartum. I imagine her risk of dissection is not completely back to baseline at that point. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Sonia. So in our series and in the GENTAC registry, type B dissections occurred early in the postpartum period in Marfan syndrome women, making this really an important area for follow-up study. So we will obtain a repeat transthoracic echocardiogram when the patient returns for the postpartum visit, and then again in approximately six months if the patient has otherwise demonstrated stability throughout pregnancy. So it sounds like we should continue to monitor our patient closely, especially as she becomes pregnant and goes through the stages of pregnancy. How about breastfeeding, Dr. Narula? Are there any contraindications? So this is a really interesting question. You know, I touched upon it briefly before, but you know, in an experimental mouse model of Marfan syndrome, the risk of dissection was decreased by either withholding lactation or by providing oxytocin receptor antagonist. However, it's not clear whether these data translate to humans. And as a result, in our group, we present this data to our patients. However, in our patients specifically, we have not seen lactation to be associated with increased risk for dissection. So thankfully, our patient and her baby made it through this pregnancy unscathed. But where do you go from here? How do you counsel her about future pregnancies? Yeah, so there's several considerations. The major considerations are how she tolerated the current pregnancy and her aortic dimensions in the pre, intra, and post-pregnancy period. We should be aware of whether there were any complications in addition to aortic complications, such as eclampsia or preeclampsia. And we should really discuss the risks based on the data that are available, namely the heightened risk of dissection in the immediate pregnancy versus non-pregnancy period. But the potential, based on prepartum aortic dimensions, to progress through pregnancy safely under close monitoring with routine surveillance of aortic diameters. Dr. Narula, this has been an absolutely amazing learning experience. You've walked us through the stages of pregnancy for our patient from when she was preconception to during pregnancy, all the way to postpartum with discussion of breastfeeding and future pregnancies for our patients. So thank you so much. We know that aerotopathy and Marfan syndrome is one of your personal areas of research as well. What are some of the ongoing questions in this area that you are hoping to answer with your work? Well, thank you, Anum. And thank you, Amit and Sonia as well. I'm very thankful for this opportunity to really discuss a topic that I love and one that I feel is so important. You know, one of the major questions is the determinants of risk of type B dissection in patients with Marfan syndrome, as we've repeatedly seen this to be an unpredictable aortic complications. And this really forms the basis of the current grant funding that we have. Dr. Nurla, hearing how successful you've been just so recently out of fellowship is amazing and inspiring. What advice do you have for trainees looking to develop research careers? Well, thank you. You know, it's a team effort, and I really cannot stress enough the importance of effective mentorship. Mentors must be highly knowledgeable in your broad area of interest, highly supportive and present. You know, the relationship is, of course, a mutual exchange, which requires sincere effort and dedication from all parties involved. 
And next, time management is critical and it's an ongoing learning process. You know, we will all wear different hats and multiple hats as we transition into our faculty roles. And further adding in a research component takes an independent drive and effective time management skills. That's some great advice. Lastly, but most importantly, Dr. Nurla, what makes your heart flutter about CardioB? <laughs> um, so, you know, for aortic diseases and aortic events surrounding pregnancy, it's really a zone where the potential is limitless since data are less robust. And to put it the best way I can, it's really a flutter and I want to be a part of the change to stabilize that rhythm. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you both, Anam and Dr. Narula, so much for joining us today and teaching us about the management of aortopathies in pregnancy. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. It has been such a great experience, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. 
So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, The role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to Cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly to be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series, raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series.